Daniel chapter 2, we left off in verse 29. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, remember now, they're right on the verge of being exterminated because all the other wise men, the astronomers, the astrologers, and so forth, the Chaldeans, part of the king's college, the magicians, all those guys who were supposed to be the wisest in the land, Nebuchadnezzar had called upon them to, number one, tell him what his dreams were, number two, to interpret those dreams. He says, if you can't do both, I'm going to kill you. Because if they couldn't tell him what the dream actually was, then they could just fake an interpretation. But if they were able to tell him without him telling them first what the dreams were, then more than likely they could also interpret them. They couldn't do it, so the king orders that they all be slaughtered. But Daniel gets an opportunity to intervene with uh, the chief of the guards. And he says, go tell Nebuchadnezzar to give us a little time here and we will interpret it for him. And God is faithful as he and his companions, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, are praying, seeking the Lord. Daniel gets the information from God and he comes before Nebuchadnezzar here, verse 29. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. After what? After Nebuchadnezzar's reign would come to an end. In fact, it turns out that what God is showing Nebuchadnezzar in the dreams and Daniel is going to give the interpretation is actually a rundown of the entire course of human history in a condensed Reader's Digest kind of a way. And he who reveals secrets or mysteries has made known to you what will be. And again, as Daniel has pointed out already to Nebuchadnezzar, God is the only true revealer of mysteries. Anyone else who claims to be a revealer of mysteries is either a charlatan or they're operating in the realm of demonic counterfeits. So let's pray and we're going to pick it up in verse 30. Father God, thank you for this time in your word today. We ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you give us insight and understanding into the rest of this chapter that we're going to try to cover today. Lord, just teach us, feed us. Thank you that you are the faithful good shepherd and you love to feed your sheep. Bless this study now, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. But as for me, says Daniel, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than any one living. We see the humility of Daniel here. He's not tooting his own horn, if you will. But for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king. In other words, God revealed this to Daniel to save himself, his friends, and all the other men that were about to be executed. For our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart because Nebuchadnezzar was greatly troubled. Have you ever had a dream or a series of dreams that left you kind of troubled and uneasy and what was that all about, you know? And that's what Nebuchadnezzar was going through night after night, creating insomnia, insomnia anxiety, and so forth. And so it was for 
the benefit of Daniel, his friends, the rest of the Chaldeans, and also for Nebuchadnezzar himself. And another thing to point out here, in the New Testament, we have spiritual gifts that Paul describes for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans, other places. The uh, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, prophecy, tongues and interpretation, and so forth. And it's important to point out here, and Daniel does the very thing. Spiritual gifts, and here's where people get tripped up. Spiritual gifts are not given for the benefit of the one gifted to make him or her look good. Unfortunately, I think that's sometimes how people look at spiritual gifts. They want to operate in spiritual gifts so that they can look more spiritual and draw attention to themselves. Obviously, that's not what it's all about. Spiritual gifts are given to us for the benefit of others. As New Testament believers, for the building up of the body of Christ so that we can minister more effectively to one another. The gift of exhortation where we can encourage people. Mercy and so forth. Compassion. Gift of giving. If it weren't for the gift of giving, I don't think any church would survive because honestly, in most churches, it's a handful of people who do most of the giving. That's just just the fact of the matter and I've been in the ministry long enough to observe that and to see it and so God does gift certain individuals with that ability to give above and beyond the norm while other people are giving below the norm in this case the benefit is for primarily first and foremost for King Nebuchadnezzar to give him relief from his anxiety his stress his concern and to obviously to be a witness to him about the one true God, the one that Daniel and his friends worship. You, O king, were watching in his, in his dreams, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. So Daniel starts now by revealing the contents of the king's dream. And it appears to have been a giant statue. He gives us the description here, 32. The image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So Daniel's vision, or description rather of the vision, confirms that the image is that of a man, and it fulfills Nebuchadnezzar's requirement that the one who interprets the dream must also make known the exact contents of the dream. And interestingly, as you move from the top of the statue to the bottom, which Daniel's just done for us here, each successive ingredient, each successive metal is inferior to the previous. Notice that. At the top, the head is fine gold. And then the chest and arms are silver. And then you have the belly and thighs of bronze. So as we go down, the metals become less and less precious. And then finally, the iron mixed with clay. And what this signifies, again, as we find that this, this image... And Nebuchadnezzar's dreams 
actually represents the four great empires of world history, signifying that the power, the influence, and authority of each successive earthly kingdom will be less than that of their predecessor. And so he tells Nebuchadnezzar in verse 34, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands. How's that possible? Which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. A stone or a rock was cut out without hands. Who do you suppose that might be? Who's the rock? Jesus Christ. And notice where the rock strikes the statue. It's at the bottom, at the feet. So at the end of human history, at the, at the last of the four great empires, Christ is going to return and destroy all worldly, earthly empires. He will destroy, displace, and replace all earthly kingdoms. Does that sound like a good idea? I think so. And even those few earthly kingdoms that perhaps we had put our hope in, our trust in, our faith in, are now falling apart, are they not? Including the one that we're living in. That's okay, it has to happen. It's all part of God's plan. Verse 35, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together, again, signifying the ultimate destruction of all worldly empires, and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The chaff, when they thresh the wheat on the threshing floor, it separates the wheat from the chaff. The chaff begins to blow away, caught in the wind, become like chaff from the threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. No lasting evidence. Now today, we do have lasting, lasting evidence of former empires, don't we? We have the ruins. We have the pyramids in Egypt. We have various ruins around the world reminding us of past empires. All that will be gone completely. No more. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And it is pretty much universally understood and accepted that this is a reference to the second coming of Christ and the establishment of his millennial kingdom. Zechariah 14.9, The Lord shall be king over all the earth, and that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name is one. Good news, folks. The time is coming when Jesus truly will be the king over all the earth. And we will be serving joyfully under him in his millennial kingdom. There's an old saying, it's always darkest before the dawn. And so as things begin to look darker and darker, again, that is ultimately really good news. Because that means the return of Christ is near. Verse 36, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. So you got to love Daniel's confidence here. He lays out the dream because God has made it known to him. And he just tells the king, this is the dream. He didn't say, well, I think this is what it was more or less roughly. Nebuchadnezzar, was I close? No, this is the dream. Praise God for his confidence and trust in the Lord. So Daniel gives an absolute and detailed account of Nebi's dreams 
and visions. And can you imagine the look on the king's face about now? All he's experienced is failure with all these other wise men, so-called wise men, to the point that he's ready to kill them all. And here comes Daniel and just lays it out. He's got to be blown away. Verse 37, You, O king, are a king of kings. Not the king of kings. Notice that. You are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And at this time, Nebuchadnezzar is, in fact, the ruler of the known world. In an earthly sense, he is a king of kings, the most powerful ruler in the world. But notice Daniel tells him, the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Daniel emphasizes to Nebuchadnezzar that God is the one, the one true God, because they worshipped many gods in ancient Babylon. But the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the God of the Hebrews, is the one who has established Nebuchadnezzar on his throne. Daniel 2.20, we read previously, Daniel answered and said, Blessed is the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And then over in Romans 13.1, Paul confirms this. He said, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And so Nebuchadnezzar was made a king of kings by God himself. This is important for us to know and understand because sometimes, honestly, it's hard to honor, to obey, to respect people in authority who don't appear to be worthy of it. But we have to remember when we're doing that, we are doing it out of obedience and submission to God, who is the ultimate authority in the universe. But as I've said before, I'll say it again. Now the disciples, remember when they were brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Council of Seventy, right after the death of Christ, and they're out there, they're witnessing, they're preaching the gospel, they're using the name of Jesus, they're healing the sick, casting out demons, the whole enchilada, if you will. They were brought before the Sanhedrin and it was commanded by them to no longer preach Jesus. And they told the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men. And so there are boundaries and guidelines as to when and where and how we submit or we do not submit to those in authority. Even if they've been raised up by God, and we don't always understand why. Why did God allow Adolf Hitler to come to power? I'm not going to take the easy way out and said he did it to bring judgment on the Jewish people. That would be harsh. That would be cruel. God knows what his reasons and purposes were. But the point is, and here we, there were a lot of great people in Germany and Holland, across Europe, who hid and protected Jews. Technically, they were breaking the law, were they not? But did they do the right thing? Yes. Corey Ten Boom was one of those. She and her family. And they all went to prison for it, and they all died except for Corey. 
So there is a place where we say, sorry, that's a law or a rule or an edict that I as a believer cannot obey. But at the same time, we acknowledge, we understand the scriptures teach that all people in authority are placed there by God and we don't always understand his reasons and his purposes. And that's where faith, hope, trust come in. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? Wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So in other words, to those who are already seeking after wisdom, those who are seeking after knowledge, God imparts more to them. Wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. In the book of Proverbs and Psalms, it tells us repeatedly, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. So if you want to attain wisdom and knowledge, you must have a fear of God, which means you respect Him, you honor Him, you give Him His proper place in your life. And then again, Paul confirms in Romans 13, 1. There is no authority except from God. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. And so Daniel points this out to Nebuchadnezzar. You are who you are because God has placed you there. Verse 38, wherever the children of men dwell or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Daniel is not smacking up to Nebuchadnezzar. He's not buttering him up. I wonder where that... Do you ever look up expressions to find out where they came from? I need to look up where did buttering them up come from? That's an interesting one, isn't it? Because usually you butter someone up, something up before you get ready to toast it. I guess it's after you toast it. So I don't know. Or you bake it. You butter your baked potatoes. So somebody's been toasted, roasted, baked, I don't know. You are this head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. The first, interestingly enough, and greatest world empire. The gold head of the image is interpreted as representing Babylon. Now that's another interesting thing because man likes to think that he's constantly making progress. Everything's getting better and better. But at the same time, all we hear is how bad things are, right? We're destroying the planet. We're destroying the environment. We're destroying the water. We're doing this. We're doing that. Man is terrible. Man is the scourge of the earth. And yet all we've heard our whole lives is how great progress is, right? How we're just doing better and better and better and better. But if you look at the world empires that we're looking at here, each successive empire was not quite as powerful or influential as the previous one. So in spite of what we've been told our whole lives, I guess the narrative has changed now. But what we were told our whole lives growing up was how things are getting better and better and better. But actually, when you look at the course of human history, things are getting worse and worse and worse. In fact, I've told you this before, but the statistics prove that the average IQ of a human being has been gradually dropping. And if you look at the, the, uh, the vocabulary of people who lived 100 years ago, far superior to what we have today. 
People don't even bother to spell things right anymore. How are you? I am fine. You know? Which proves without God there's no hope. You see, if we could do it on our own, if we didn't need God, things really would be getting better and better, but they're not. But by the grace of God, Christ is going to come back and rejuvenate this whole planet and only the godly will inhabit it during the millennium. You are the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. And again, it might sound like flattery, but it's really not. Daniel is just basically telling Nebuchadnezzar the truth, the facts. But as we will see soon, next week, it does go to his head. Pardon the expression. 39, after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And so he's the head of gold. Next we have uh, the chest and arms of silver, the second great world empire, which will be the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. 538 to 333 B.C. And Daniel tells him again, not flattery, just fact. It will be inferior to yours. In fact, each succeeding empire will be a little less powerful than the one preceding it. Again, proving man's totally incapable of governing himself. And his best efforts are nothing compared to the greatness of God. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. This is the belly and thighs of bronze. The Greek Empire, 333 to 63 B.C. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes. How many of you have cast iron skillets at home? I love those things. My mom used to use them. for we, You know, we tried the Teflon thing, and then they... You know, they came out and said, well, you know, actually Teflon causes cancer, but never mind. <laughs> Another great invention of man, more progress. Non-stick surfaces on your pots and pans. The only problem is when they start to peel off, they can give you cancer. So then stainless steel, all these different products. But it's hard to beat a good cast iron skillet. And uh, they've been used more than once to succumb uh, an unwanted uh, assault. They're strong, aren't they? And it says here, yeah, that the iron shatters everything. The Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. So this fourth kingdom is the legs of iron. The fourth kingdom represents the Roman Empire. 31 B.C. to 476 A.D. And the Roman Empire was known for having the most powerful military in the world. Crushed and conquered its opponents. Actually in much the same way as Hitler's Blitzkrieg in the 20th century. Very powerful military. In fact, Hitler even modeled his Third Reich on the Roman Empire. Obviously it didn't last too long. But uh, if you've ever seen that movie Gladiator, it depicts a battle 
between the Romans and the Goths or the, the, the Germanic tribes that uh, were fighting against the Romans at that time and um, about the middle of the second century. And it was brutal. I mean, they were just brutal. They, it was just like the, the Nazis a couple thousand years later. So that's describing the Roman Empire now. Verse 41, you might say, well, what's happened since then? That was a long time ago. Roman Empire ended in 476 A.D. In recent times, we have had the, the British Empire was a, not nearly the, to the extent of these others and more of a peaceful, uh, for the most part, of course, anytime one country goes in to dominate another, the, there are issues and problems. Verse 41, whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. Now this, where it says the kingdom shall be divided, it can also be translated a kingdom of two parts. Part one, part two. As we will see, the end times, one world government of the Antichrist will be a revival of the Roman Empire. Even though it's referred to the system, interestingly enough, is referred to in the book of Revelation as Babylon, Babylon the Great. We have political Babylon, the one world government, religious Babylon, the one world religion coming soon to a planet near you. And then you have economic Babylon, the one world economic system, but it is also understood to be, in terms of this prophecy, a revival of the ancient Roman Empire. Not as powerful as the early one, hence the feet of iron mixed with clay. The Antichrist kingdom, as we know from our study in Revelation, will only last seven years, the seven-year tribulation. It'll crumble very quickly in comparison to the original Roman Empire, which lasted almost 400 years. Verse 42, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. The toes, which are explained in verse 44 as ten kings or kingdoms that will exist at the time God sets up his kingdom at the second coming of Christ. And we'll get into that more in a moment. As you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. Now this is very interesting. The people will be a mixture and will not remain united, it says in the um, NIV. See, the one world government of the Antichrist, made up of nations and peoples from all over the globe, will eventually crumble, with the rulers of the earth turning against the Antichrist. We have this massive push today for diversity, and it's not proving to be the uniting force the way the liberal, elitist, globalist, would have people believe. If you look down through the course of human history and you have all these different people groups, these different ethnicities, ethnos in the Greek, different cultures, different 
societies. By the way, the ones that have done the best and flourished the most have been the ones that have worshipped the one true God of the Bible. Those are the ones who have flourished and done the best. But the, all the various ethnicities, societies, and cultures have existed within their own little group, right? It's called a homogenous unit. It's like homogenized milk where it's all blended very nicely together and so forth. Now America became the great exception because people came here from every part of the world. But what made America great is what's now destroying it. What made America great was that people came here from every part of the world, different cultures, different societies, different languages, but with the same desire to live in a land of liberty and justice and freedom, to be able to worship God in their own way. And so they, they came together in one common language. Now, a lot of them still kept their little individual, you know, the Polish community had their culture and the Italians and so on and so forth. But they viewed themselves first and foremost as Americans. And we all spoke the same language. What did God do with the Tower of Babel when, it's, when man was becoming too haughty and prideful and trying to ascend into the heavens and be like God? He confounded them and made them all speak different languages so they couldn't communicate. Right? We all remember that? But people came to America and whether they spoke German or Greek or Italian or whatever, they learned to speak English and everybody was able to communicate and many wonderful things were accomplished. Is this country perfect? No, not by any means. But I would argue that it's the best country that's ever existed on the face of this planet. At least it was. But now this big push for diversity is actually destroying us and that's what's going to destroy the one world government, one world religion, and one world economy of the Antichrist, the people will be a mixture and will not remain united. The goal of the, the satanic globalists who are now pulling the strings, if you will, on the various puppets running the various countries, their goal is to destroy all nation states. No more United States, no more Canada, no more Great Britain, and on and on it goes. Because when you do that, when you take away people's identity, their national identity, their cultural identity, and so forth, they have nothing left to live for, to fight for, to believe in. The only reason the USA became so successful and so powerful is that people came to this country to assimilate to become Americans no matter their ethnicity, their culture, or their country of origin. And this is now all being systematically destroyed. And interestingly enough, it actually is spoken of in the Bible right here. Verse 44, in the days of these kings, these ten kings, we're going to talk more about them in a moment, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. This is when the rock comes rolling in and crushes all previous kingdoms. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In the time of those kings, 
these are the ten toes at the bottom of the statue, the image of Revelation 17:12 says the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom but who for one hour, a brief period of time, will receive authority as kings along with the beast, the Antichrist. So what do the UN and the other globalist organizations have up their sleeves? It's been well documented that they have a plan in place to divide the world, get rid of all the individual countries, and divide the world into ten regions. How many of you are already aware of this? You've seen this? You've read this? Ten regions erasing all nation states. Region 1, North America. Region 2, Latin America. Region 3, Europe. Region 4, Russia and neighbors. The Russian neighbors are pretty nervous right now. Five, the Sub-Saharan Africa. Six, North Africa and Southwest Asia. Seven, East Asia. Nine, South Asia, because Asia is massive and probably has the largest population base in the world. So we've got North Africa, Southwest Asia is one. East Asia, another one. South Asia, another one. Southeast Asia. And then finally, the ten, tenth sector or region will be Australia and Oceania, the surrounding island nations. Uh, Australia and Oceania. So this is the game plan. Gee, interest, isn't it interesting that we're told in the Bible thousands of years ago that this would happen? Ten kings, ten toes, ten regions. We've got hundreds of countries now all over the world. Think how much more manageable it will be when there's only ten regions to deal with. Huh? Right? And when everybody has their chip so they can track everybody. A few years ago that sounded preposterous. Does anybody think that sounds preposterous today? A microchip under the skin, it's already happening. They're working on so many, they're already tracking people with their iPhones, iPads, laptop, desktop, even appliances. It's true. It's true. Never look your refrigerator straight in the eye. Okay. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Every kingdom in the history of the world has gone down sooner or later. And Jesus is ultimately going to displace that remaining kingdom, so-called kingdom of the Antichrist with the ten regions. But his kingdom will never be destroyed. That's the kingdom I want to be a part of. What about you? In other words, when the second half of the fourth kingdom emerges, part two, that's coming soon to a planet near you, Roman Empire, part two, Jesus will return and establish his everlasting kingdom upon the earth. The end times, one world government of the Antichrist will be the last and final human kingdom or empire on the earth. We're getting very close right now, folks. Verse 45, inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation 
is sure. The NIV here it says this is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain but not by human hands. So from Daniel's perspective, notice this, which is also God's perspective by the way, the ultimate fall of all earthly empires and the coming millennial kingdom of Christ is really the focal point of the whole vision. It's not really about Nebuchadnezzar or the other great empires. They all lead up to the final solution that God has establishing the eternal kingdom of Christ on the earth. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The one true God has revealed to Nebuchadnezzar the entire course of human history culminating with the kingdom of God on earth. And then I love what Daniel says next. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Keep in mind, Daniel's neck is on the line. His friend's necks are on the line. In fact, the entire Chaldean cast, their necks are on the line. And Daniel says this with absolute confidence in God. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. You have to admire Daniel's absolute confidence in God's revelation to him. Verse 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, good idea, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. Now, he really should have done that for Daniel's God, right? But he's so blown away by what Daniel has just done. And this is an honor that normally would have been given only to the gods of Babylon and indicating that Nebuchadnezzar fully acknowledges the accuracy and the veracity of Daniel's interpretation. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Now, I don't think this necessarily means that Nebuchadnezzar is ready to renounce all other gods, and we'll find out he does have to spend some time out in the pasture. But he certainly now, through the witness and testimony of Daniel, recognized the superiority of Daniel's God. And he even refers to Daniel's God as the Lord of Kings. So he also seems to acknowledge the fact of his own appointment to power by Daniel's God and recognize his authority. Pretty amazing. And that's, again, when we talk about spiritual gifts, Daniel is operating here in a spiritual gift, uh, being able to not only interpret the dream, but actually tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was. But it was for God's glory, not man's glory. And Daniel makes that clear right at the very beginning. And it's had the desired effect. It's gotten Nebuchadnezzar's attention in ways that no one ever had before. Your, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets or mysteries, since you could reveal this secret or this mystery. So Nebuchadnezzar additionally subscribes, subscribes to Daniel's proposition that his God is the only true revealer of mysteries. Daniel 2.27 and 28. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a man, or a god rather, in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And now Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that that, in fact, is true. That is the case. So verse 48, the king promoted Daniel 
and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. Does that remind you of Joseph? Remember how God raised Joseph up from being, being a slave and being in prison to becoming the number two guy in the land of Pharaoh? He promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. One translation says he placed Daniel in a high position. We'll see what that's all about in a moment. Gave him many great gifts. This seems to indicate that Daniel, as a result of this, became a wealthy man. That wasn't what he was seeking. The key is he was not seeking any reward at all. He was simply seeking to be faithful to God, to be God's messenger, God's servant. And as a result, he's also blessed in a material way. People tend to get that all backwards. But Jesus tells in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so you can't lose that way. Because if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, no matter whether you have just a little bit or a lot, you will be at peace, you will be contented, you'll be happy. Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content, whether having much or having little. And when you, God blesses you like he just blessed Daniel, it's just frosting on the cake. But there is no blessing as great as the spiritual blessing of having love and joy and peace in your heart through the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, some of the happiest people that have ever walked this planet have been some of the poorest people in terms of the things of this world. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, or Chaldee, the word Chaldee, ruler, it means to rule, commonly applied to one who rules as a prince or in an elevated office. Now Daniel was already a prince of Israel. He was part of the royal family that was taken captivity out of Israel. But now he's a prince in Babylon as well. And from this word come the terms sultan. If you're a man, sultana. If you're a female, and so Daniel has been elevated to a very, very high position. Daniel 3.2, King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So we're going to see next chapter here that Nebuchadnezzar is going to go off his rocker and demand everybody to worship him which is kind of mind-blowing considering what just took place. But we see that government bureaucracy is not a new thing. Look at all the positions. Satraps, ministrators, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. And here's Daniel over all of them. The Babylonian Empire was divided into many provinces, each one under the leadership of a satrap. And apparently... Nebuchadnezzar put Daniel over all of these other satraps, making him a, a prime minister of sorts. It's just awesome to see over and over again in the Bible how God raises up his people, takes them from a place where they look to be doomed to destruction to places of great power and position and influence. And then he's also chief administrator over all of the wise men. So this would seem to be an appointment separate and apart from his office as Prime Minister of Babylon. So this appears to be an additional mark of favor 
As we know, he was trained up in the king's college with these other Chaldeans, and now he's over all of them. When, when Daniel and his associates arrived in Babylon, they were chosen to attend the king's college where the best and brightest were trained in the arts and sciences. Now, only in his early 20s at this time, Daniel has just been made the chancellor, the president of the very college for which he had been recently graduated. Daniel had achieved in a very short time what many men and women work for their whole lives, power, position, wealth. God knew that he could handle it. It never went to his head. In verse 49, also Daniel positioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. He didn't forget his friends. That happens sometimes, does it? When people experience a great elevation like this and success and so forth, they forget about their friends that helped them along the way, not Daniel. He asked that they be promoted too. So the king made Shadrach or Hananiah, Meshach or Mishael, and Abednego or Azariah administrators to serve under Daniel in the same province. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king, which is a place of utmost honor. You might say that Daniel was Nebuchadnezzar's White House chief of, chief of staff also. He basically entrusted Daniel with the welfare of his entire kingdom. So in a, a remarkable way, God elevated Daniel to a position in the royal court so he could serve as a mediator between the king. Now keep this in mind. Daniel was part of the first wave that went into captivity, but there are more coming. And now God has placed him there so that he can be a mediator between the king and the exiles from Judah who would shortly be brought to Babylon in 597 and again in 586. How cool. Now God did allow them to be taken into captivity because of their disobedience and not keeping the Sabbath years. But at the same time, he's also preparing a way to protect them while they are in captivity. And that's how God works. You know, the Bible says those whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And so there are times in our lives perhaps where we're not walking as we should and God may have to chasten us, but he's also there with his secondary plan to protect us and bring us through. That should be extremely encouraging to every one of us. Because God's ultimate goal for us is for good, not for evil. And so even those things that to us may appear to be bad, what does Romans 8.28 say? All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes, right? So we have four young men here, Daniel and his friends, dedicated, sold out to Jehovah God, lifted up by him to rule over the very ones that had taken them captive. Absolutely amazing. 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. A lot of us in this room have, don't have to worry about that. But if you are young, be encouraged. God brought me into full-time ministry at the age of 18. You all know who Greg Laurie is. He started his church when he was 19 years old. I knew Greg back in those days, Southern California. 19 years old, he planted that church. It was Calvary Chapel of Riverside. Now it's Harvest Christian Fellowship. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Timothy at this time was in his 30s. But set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Folks, one final little message to chew on as we close. It's never too early or too soon to yield your life over to God. 
but it's also never too late. Let's stand. I mentioned earlier that we would pray for anyone who'd like to receive Christ. I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads, close their eyes, so that people will feel comfortable raising their hands. If you're here this morning and there's uncertainty in your heart and your mind concerning your relationship with God, you don't know where you stand, but you'd like to be in right standing with God. You would like to have that inner peace and that inner assurance that you truly are a born-again child of God, that you have received the gift of eternal life, and that you will be a part of God's eternal kingdom. If you'd like to pray and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, I'd like to ask you to raise your hand and keep it up for just a moment so that I could acknowledge you. I see one over there, one over here. Anybody else that would like to receive Christ this morning? Okay, Father, you see those hands. You know who they are. And we want to pray together now, Father. I encourage those of you that raised your hand, and even if you didn't, if you'd like to receive Christ, pray along with me. You don't have to pray out loud, but you can if you want. Heavenly Father, I confess to you now that I am a sinner, that I have fallen short of your glory, of your perfection. And Father, I want to repent of my sins. I want to turn from a life of sin and become a follower of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me so that I might be forgiven of my sins. Lord Jesus, please wash me and cleanse me with your precious blood and fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord, so that I might have the strength to live my life for you. Thank you for giving me the precious gift of eternal life. I now dedicate my life to you, even as you gave your life for me. I commit my life to you, Lord. Thank you for saving me. Thanking you for coming to live inside of me. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer this morning and you meant it, you're now a child of God. Something to celebrate. Thank you, Jesus. And you're also now eligible to sign up for baptism. <laughs> okay, if you have any other prayer requests, go ahead and raise your hand. Father, you see each hand. You know what's going on. There are many things that we deal with in this life. Lord, one of them is health. Whether we're young or we're old, Lord, there are various afflictions that can come our way. We lift those up to you now. Whether it be something as simple as allergies or a cold, Lord, or COVID-19 or... Whatever it is, Lord, we lift all the afflictions represented here today up to you. It could be heart disease. It could be lung disease. It could be cancer. It could be leukemia. There's so many things. We live in bodies that are cursed by sin, and we do get sick. But, Lord, you are our healer. And I know many of us in this room have experienced your healing on more than one occasion. And, Lord, no matter how that healing comes about, even if it comes through medical means, we still give you the praise and the glory and the honor. You are ultimately our healer, just as you are ultimately our provider. So, Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you'd pour out your healing on anyone and everyone here today and anyone that they might be representing, anyone watching on the Internet.
Father, we ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit and bring healing to those in need of a physical touch today. And we will be quick to give you the praise and the glory for that healing. Lord, we lift up mental and emotional issues can, which can be just as debilitating, if not more so, than physical. Lord, anxiety, anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief, anger, bitterness, resentment, jealousy, unforgiveness. Lord, those things can really make us sick mentally, emotionally, and even physically. We pray for deliverance from all these things in Jesus' name. Lord, you promised you would give us the peace that passes all understanding, and we need that. So I pray for those who are struggling in that area of the mind, the emotions, the thought, the thought life, the feelings. Lord, please bring healing to them as well. Pour out your peace upon them. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. Strengthen them and encourage them, I ask in Jesus' name. Father, for those with financial issues that you would provide, you did promise to take care of us. We read that verse this morning. That if we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, all these things would be added unto us. Lord, please provide for your children and give us wisdom and guidance to be good stewards over the resources you have given us. Lord, for those who need a job, we pray for provision of the job. Lord, for, or a better job if needed. And we know that ultimately, no matter where our resources come from, they do come from you. You are our provider, and we thank you for that. And finally, God, we pray for relationships. We know that the thief comes but to steal, to kill, to destroy, to, to divide us, to tear us apart. Friends, families, neighbors, co-workers. Lord, we pray for healing and restoration of broken relationships and wisdom on how we can be peacemakers and mediators. Lord, that we would be the first ones to step forward and initiate reconciliation whenever possible, Lord. We pray that those damaged relationships could be healed, particularly marriages. Lord, we know that that's a number one target of the devil to destroy marriages, to just destroy families. So we ask that you bring healing and restoration to those who are struggling in that area. And we give you the praise and the glory and the thanks. We thank you for your word, for the wonderful story of Daniel and his friends. And Lord, we pray now that you receive our final offering of praise as we lift it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.